My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Rod and line fishing for giant tunny, or bluefin tuna as we know them today, in British waters started back in the 1930s. Following a spate of reported sightings of huge fish by commercial herring boat crews working off the Yorkshire coast, in 1929, famous angler of his day, Henry Stapleton Cotton, headed out off the Scarborough coast to investigate, resulting in the hooking up and subsequent loss of two huge fish, which he was convinced were giant tuna. The following year, well-heeled big fish enthusiast Lorenzo Mitchell Henry followed Stapleton Cotton's lead, and on the 27th of August 1930, Fishing 50 miles off the Yorkshire coast in the vicinity of the Herring Fleet, he boated Britain's first rod-caught bluefin tuna with a fish of 560 pounds. That same year saw further four rod-caught tuna brought into Scarborough, weighing 392 pounds, 591 pounds, 630 pounds and 758 pounds, the latter of which, at the time, was a mere £23 short of Zane Gray's £758 world record, taken off Nova Scotia. From then on, there was no looking back, with many more big fish taken by wealthy enthusiasts who could afford to hire local commercial fishing boats to take them out amongst the herring drifters, where in 1932, Colonel E.T. Peel finally broke Gray's world record with a £798-pounder, which was itself bettered the following year by that man Mitchell Henry, with a fish that still holds a British record for the species at £851. But arguably, the most outstanding tunny fishing feat of the time was that of Captain Cyril Hubert Frisby VC, who over five consecutive days took 12 fish, five of which weighing between 461 and 658 pounds were taken during the same day. That's a measure of just how good Scarborough's tuna fishing was back then. But unfortunately, by the mid-1950s, it was all over. The reason being that many of the herring boats which were essential in chumming up these big fish stopped working due to a combination of population collapse and regulation. So bad had things become that in 1956 an emergency symposium was held to try to find ways of halting the herring's decline. And with the loss of the herring fishery, and the boats that attracted them, went any possibility of locating the tuna, bringing to an end one of the most exciting chapters in British rod and line fishing. The last tunny or bluefin tuna caught in the North Sea was taken by wealthy businessman Harry Weatherly in 1954, and present when that fish was caught, along with many other of Weatherly's monster fish, was Scarborough commercial fisherman Bill Pashby, who is with me for this particular podcast today. So let's start by getting straight down to business by looking at your role in this particular historical episode. When I first went to the fishing, I was 12 year old. We used to go for pleasure in the summertime. And then when I left school, I went full time working, catching tunny fish with Mr. Weatherly. End of the 50s, there wasn't a, uh, another tunny fish caught on this coast. I left school in 1950. What age was you then? 15. And you went straight into commercial fishing? Yes. It was your father's boat, I take it? Yes. The name of the boat was called Courage. And primarily, what was the boat fishing for? We were catching dogfish at the time out of Grimsby. And this particular time, uh, we'd had a really good week, and Mr Weatherly, whom my dad used to take out, he rang up, and he said, uh, I want to wear your, your boat for uh, three weeks. So my dad said, well, we're doing so well here. 
So Mr. Weatherly said, whatever you've made this week, I'll double it. So my dad said, come on, we're going home. We're going for three weeks holiday, <laughs> which it was to us. Presumably the tunny had always been there, so why all of a sudden did the prospect of catching them on Rotten Line take hold? Well, it was money people, it was a sport. It was class of sport. It wasn't like much because they were, they were catching loads. But in the 30s, there was any amount of uh, guys catching tunny fish in all kinds of boats. Yachts, right. big yachts, private yachts. My dad says there was any amount of people wanting to weigh your boat in the 30s, right. 20s and 30s. And what exactly would a booking like that entail in terms of organisation? The rules was you had to catch the, the fish in a small rowing boat. And uh, in those days it was easy because there was any amount of ships catching herrings with drift nets. And uh, you just had to go out from Scarborough five, six, seven mile and you'd come at these ships and you'd say, have you seen any tunny fish? And uh, no, and uh, but I would get on the radio. And he says, uh, over there the light flashing. That man has tunny fish round. So we just went from him to this light flashing and there they were. Imagine we give him a, a crater beer like, you know, for his uh, troubles. And it was so easy because uh, as the herrings was dropping out the nets, uh, the tunny fish was on top of the water, that was in the dark. And in the daylight they used to go down. It's very rare that they came up in the daylight. So what we had to do was, while Mr. Weatherly had a, a fish on, we had to keep tossing errands overboard to keep them round us. And at uh, one particular time, he, he caught four fish before breakfast. 743 pound was one of them, 589 pound, uh, 545 pounds, and the... Uh, the record fish was uh, over 800 pounds. So you'd approach one of these herring drifters when they were hauling the nets with fish falling free from them into the water. And the tuna, or the tunnies I know you prefer to call them, are darting about here, there and everywhere mopping them up. So what was the sequence of events your boat crew would follow and how best would you approach these fish to get a successful outcome? You had about six foot of trace. It was uh, like piano wire and rest was line, and my father would be stood at the side of the man with the hook baited, and when the fish was coming around, he'd throw the line over, and then my dad wasn't allowed to touch that anymore, until he'd caught the fish and got it alongside, and my father had to put a, a gaff in its bottom lip, because it was tied out then, practically dead. And then we'd come, we'd, uh, we would be following him, the small boat in the uh, big boat and it was block and tackle then we just load the uh, tackle down and uh, put a, be a becket around its tail and hooked it on and heaved it up and put it uh, on deck. And all of this was done from a small rowing boat regardless of the distance out to sea. Rowing boats, yes. And you was actively involved in all of this with your father and the client out in his boat. Oh yes, I, sometimes I had to go and uh, pull on the oars as soon as you had the fish on, you had to apply pressure by rowing. The fish would pull the boat stern first, and you would be sat far on the oars, pulling the opposite way, and it would help to tie the fish out. But at the first, once you'd hooked the fish, 
he'd pull the oars in and let it run for a while and it slowly tired out and as it was tiring out then you'd put oars out again and start rowing the opposite way to tire it out more. So how long might a typical encounter with such a big fish last? Well Mr Weatherly he caught them four fish before breakfast and uh, about an hour. He could catch one in an hour, couldn't Mr Weatherly. Some, some others took longer. Was it always Harry Weatherly had out with you or did other people place bookings too? Well, Mr Weatherly was the only chap I went with, uh, but before uh, my father used, used to take different fellas out, he took Lady Broughton out. Uh, she used to take a long time to catch her fish. When I was researching for this interview, I came across Lady Broughton on the internet. The picture I saw of her was of a bit of a looker and very well connected to the aristocracy of Europe. A bit of a far cry from being out on a fishing boat based at Scarborough. Well, they all say that Grand Hotel because the, the Grand Hotel in Scarborough was the hotel for the rich and uh, some of them, the Tunny Fish guys, were, used to stay at the uh, Tunny Club. So what about Lady Broughton as a person? I heard she had quite a good repertoire of Anglo-Saxon swear words and on occasion was also prone to wetting herself during the exertion of playing a big fish. My dad used to say that she was all a swearing and if it was bad weather he had to go up to the Grand Hotel and she sort of showed him off, you know, this is my boatmaster sort of thing. I don't think my mother liked it like, but there you are. <laughs> it was interesting, it was like a holiday to us. I mean, uh, you went out and uh, you were out for two days and then you came back and you had a day in and then you went for another two days. Uh, 10th of August, that's when Erin used to come off Scarborough. Nearly all of us on that day, 10th of August, and that's when all... Ooh, hundreds of ships, there was, uh, you name it, there was Dutch, French, German, Russians, Scotch, English, boats catching errands. It was like a town, you went out to Arbor, said, in dark, and it was, you could look east from Scarborough, and it was just like another town with lights. That season went on, uh, right from 10th of August, well, about the end of October. The errands slowly moved south. So they, they were catching plenty of herrings off of low stuff eventually. And the tullies used to just follow the uh, errings. And did none of the other nearby ports also try to muscle in on the tunny fishing as the herrings progressively migrated to the south? Not the ran off. No. Not the ran off. What was Whitby's involvement in all of this then? There wasn't many uh, going out to Whitby catching them, funny enough. It was scabbing. But I say in the 20s and 30s, there would have been, I suppose. But in the 50s, no, there was only one chap who used to go to Whitby, but it was all Scarborough. The fish, what you caught, used to be on show for charity in a hut with plenty of ice around them. And when that was going off, they dumped that and put another one in. And I remember Bamford's on Sandside, he, he got one and he advertised it, and there was a great big queue. and. Uh, it wasn't very nice, but nowadays uh, I've been told if you, if you catch one and you just have to get in touch with uh, China, they'll come through and uh, they'll give you a hundred thousand for one, a full grown one. But uh, they were sighted as tunny fish, uh, we lost track of them end of fifties, there was never one caught, but three years ago they were sighted off Ireland and there was one or two caught. 
and then they disappeared and the last time they saw them was in the English Channel and that's the last report I've, I've heard of. So, to keep on the right side of the Tunny Club rules, you take a small boat out with you to fish from. Would that be towed at the back of your bigger boat, or would it be put in from the deck when either the weather was right, or you located big fish picking up the herrings at the side of one of the herring drifters? Well, we used to tow it if it was fine weather, but if it, if it, was, uh, if it became bad weather, we, we got it on board. And would you still fish in the bad weather? No, no, if it was bad weather, but sometimes we got caught in bad weather you know, 70 or 80 miles off, so uh, we, we'd get the small boat aboard. So you'd get as far off as that, would you, on a regular basis? Oh, yes. We, we, we once uh, were 80, 90 mile off, and we came at these uh, Danish boats, and they were catching tunny fish for a living. What they were doing was uh, they had a rod, and they threw the bait overboard, and as soon as the tunny fish took hold, there's a guy pressed the button and an electric current went down the line and stunned it. Got it alongside, we laid and watched this, and uh, this was towards the end of the 50s. And uh, a guy stood forward with a gun, he walked off, shot it in the head, another guy bent over, put a strop round its tail, heaved it up, straightened out fish room, and we, we timed him, he got uh, five fish down the fish room within half an hour middle of the 50s, uh, and Danes was catching them all the time then, we didn't know that. And some were catching them with pellets, you know, like boys uh, took the line out, and uh, a big boy, and uh, they'd follow the boy till fish got tired, then they'd pick the boy up and go to your bird. So tell us a little bit more about Harry Weatherly, who it seems was possibly the last person to catch a giant tunny from Scarborough, and presumably from your boat. Mr Weatherly, he wouldn't go down the cabin, he had a tent built on deck in front of the wheelhouse. It was, it was well built, and uh, that's where he slept on deck. He wasn't prone to seasickness, was he? Well, uh, it could be. It could, could be. But he had a, a, a nice tent on deck, and it was well secured. My uncle Tom, he, he took a guy out in his boat, and he got the, the world record fish, which was 820 pounds, I believe it was. No, it was a record. And uh, I was with him for pleasure at the time, I, I was still at school. And you actually witnessed the catching of that fish? Yes. And what about Mitchell Henry? Allegedly he was a bit of a tyrant. I've read all sorts about him, and obviously from what went on, and stuff that's well documented, he didn't take too kindly to having his record beaten by John Hedley Lewis, particularly as Hedley Lewis was a mere farmer, and not a true gentleman of the British Tunny Club. So he complained about the weight of the rope around the fish's tail, and had Hedley Lewis's claim thrown out. Yes, well, me Uncle Tom, he took the guy out, what got the record, and the, the Whitby people, what caught one, said the strop round the tail, what me Uncle Tom's fish was weighed with, it was too heavy, and it wasn't. It wasn't. What was the weight difference between these two fish? Two pound heavier. They were arguing over it, but nothing was done. Now I know you're not an angler, but what can you tell us about the actual tackle used to catch some of these huge fish? Well, you had uh, you had an ordinary line, and you had to have from your line to the hook, you had to have a, a trace. Anyway, the, the the Tunny Club rules was this this trace was so thick when the water was clear in daylight, 
you had a job to catch them. So Mr. Weatherly said, I'll catch them next year in, uh, in daylight. And my dad said, oh, what are we going to do? He said, you wait and see. And he came with piano wire, which was a lot thinner than the, the club rules. And he could hook them late out in daylight. Right. <laughs> it was very, very thin. And what were the rods and reels like back then? Oh, they were, they, they were, they were good. They were, they were very expensive, was the reels. The reels would be huge centre pins then, which is presumably where the term Scarborough reel came from. So it was just a rod, a reel and a trace at the end of a line with a big hook baited with a herring. But what about a sinker lead? Or did you not need one with the fish being so high up in the water column? They were all around you. They were all around you. Any amount around you. When the water was clear at daylight you could, whew, you could see far enough down. He always wanted to hook a, a whale. Well, there's always whales among tunny fish, which are all feeding off the errands. And uh, this particular day, he, he hooked one, and off we were going. And I was in the small boat with my dad and Mr. Weatherly, and I had to pull oars in. We were going really, really fast. And there was any amount of ships in that area. Well, we were going straight for one ship, and my dad had to just cut the line. Otherwise, we'd have smacked right into him. There's any amount of whales then, blowfish, yeah. I suppose you could find yourself in a similar position being towed about by a big tunnel amongst the working herring boats. Well, funny enough, Mr. Weatherly, he was very good. When we had a fish on, sometimes you were going for a, a Dutchman or a Frenchman, you know, because they would they were laid all in the nets, and he could make the fish go one way or the other. He was clever that way. I don't know how he did it, but he could sort of steer his way through with the, with the fish on the hook. What about when he got such a huge fish to the side of a rowing boat? Did he ever experience any fun and games at that point? Well, it was, uh, it was after after half an hour, the fish was really, really tired out. And uh, the more you pulled on the oars, it tied it out. And then he just goes alongside. And once once the trace was up, my dad was allowed to handle the, the line then. Because you're running like four foot off the, four or five foot off the hook. And he'd have a, he'd have a boat hook in his hand and he'd, he'd have the trace in his left hand and he'd just put the hook in his bottom lip and tie it alongside. And uh, the big boat would come and block and tackle up and down. No problems then with it thrashing about or finding enough energy for one last dive. No, 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 no. Well, they made sure it was tied out before they got it alongside. So having watched all of this with some very big fish coming to the boat, were you ever tempted to give it a try? Or did you ever have a go yourself on the days when you didn't have paying clients on board? Yes, I did. Uh, the two of us left on the big boat, and while they were off with fish, they were still all around us. So we rigged a line-up, me and Herbert Nicholson, and uh, we didn't have a rod, but we, we had plenty of rope aboard. And uh, we baited a hook, threw it overboard, within seconds there was a fish on, and we had the line round the cleat, so we could slack it out, slack it out. And then when we come to the end of the line, we had to make it fast, and the big boat was actually moving. And all of a sudden, it, uh, the line parted, because there was so much weight. Yeah, but we did, we did try. <laughs> Why were you never tempted to have a proper go with a rod and a line? No. Me, me Uncle Tom, he, he, he caught one by himself. He, uh, you know, they got the record. And he, 
what the, the, the tunny the fellow he had out with him, he was having to sleep, so he had to go himself and he caught one. Because when he woke up, this tunny fella here, where's that come from, he said. He said, I've just caught it. So you're out there amongst the herring drifters. You get the message that there are some very big fish picking up the dropouts from the nets and you hightail it over there to put a bait amongst them. What sort of numbers of tunny might you typically see looking to get a free meal? Oh, 30, 40. Yes, yeah, 30, 40. No, and, and it was a sight in daylight, but water was clear, you know. Uh, summertime water was clear when you got off, off a bit. And it, looking down, it was a marvellous sight, it really was. Just like little minnows swimming about and massive fish. What kind of sizes were these fish able to get up to? Because while the record stands at 851 pounds, there could well have been other bigger fish out there which either never hooked up or were never landed. Well, there might have been more out. I don't think I ever saw one as uh, bigger than that. No. What do you reckon the average size was then? I would say the average size was about uh, 600 pounds. That's some average. What about numbers of fish? What's the best catch either yourselves or, for that matter, any of the other boats recorded in a single trip? Well, we caught four in one day. I didn't know any more anybody else catching any more than that in one day. There might have been before my time. Considering that the clientele that could afford to hire a boat like yours for days on end were all well-heeled and conditioned to a lifestyle that most of us can only dream about, there must have been something extra special about the tunny scene to tempt them away from this luxury and persuade them to spend days on end in basic conditions, then suffer a physical mauling from such a huge hard-fighting fish. It must have been something of a culture shock for them, particularly if rough weather set in. So what do you think it was that motivated these people in such a way? Well, they all enjoyed it. Yeah, but if it if, if, if got too rough, my father wouldn't let him go at small boats. That was the agreement, which was common sense, really, isn't it? No motor launches, then, to make life a little bit easier, because one thing's for sure, it sounds like most of these people could have afforded it. The rule was you had to catch it in a small boat. They weren't allowed to catch them on the big boat. When you do a Scarborough tunny fishing search on the internet, the same few names continually crop up. Being the record holder, and I suppose because of his alleged uncompromising nature, Mitchell Henry is obviously the main man. But your man, Mr Weatherly, also made his fair share of tunny fishing history. So tell us a little bit more about Harry Weatherly, the person. Mr Weatherly lived in Teddington, and he, uh, he was into hydraulics. And his son flew Spitfires during the war. He invited me dad over to Ted uh, Teddington, and... Uh, that summer, my dad was telling me all about hydraulic winches, because we had a hydraulic winch aboard at the time. Anyway, unbeknown to my dad, he had this factory and every machine was driven by hydraulics. And my dad felt daft when he saw when he went in the factory and he was showing him round every, every machine was driven by hydraulics. And my dad was had been trying to tell him some before all about. And he put uh, hydraulics into the Spitfire. And he put hydraulics uh, into Churchill Tank. When he came through to Scarborough, he used to come in a Rolls Royce, him and his wife, and he used to stay at the Grand Hotel. And uh, his wife used to sit all day long in, in the Rolls Royce, and the driver in his uniform let him go off for a few hours. And his wife used to just sit watching all kids play on the beach. Anyway, when we were in Arbor, it, with me being youngest in Crow, I had to 
go about with him and we went to Nat West Bank, drove up in his Rolls Royce and there was no one-way streets in them days, went straight up, straight outside Nat West and I went in with him and uh, he said, uh, I want to draw £400 out please and I've stood there and the guy behind the desk, he counted out £400 and he says, oh, take that away, I want new pound notes. So, so he had to uh, take it away and get brand new pound notes for him. They were a really nice couple. He used to bring all his own food, mostly fruit, all in tins. And they were, they were kept in his tent. And he always had plenty of booze aboard at boat, because uh, uh, he went alongside of a ship and a bottle up, you know. And he could get all the information he wanted where all Tony Fish was, you know. I think they all did that. <laughs> and uh, he was a very nice man. They're all nice guys, you know. Plenty of money and looked after us. Mr. Weatherly, when he used to stay at the Grand Hotel, when his time was up, he uh, used to go around and give the head chef, the head barman, a fiver, which was a lot of money then. Oh, hey, you give everybody a hotel a tip. He's a very generous man. And you get a tip yourself? Oh, aye, yeah. So when they were out on the boat, these people had to rough it like the rest of the crew. But on shore, it was back to the height of luxury at the Grand Hotel. Leastways for those who could afford it. But presumably not everybody could, because of the Tunny Club HQ, which is now a chip shop, though it's still called the Tunny Club, besides meeting up there and enjoying a few drinks, it was also possible to lodge there too, I believe. The Tunny Club started in 1935, the year I was born. And uh, sometimes there'd be two fellas come and they'd share the bill. There's only about two bedrooms. Downstairs there's a, there's a bar and uh, it's a big room and a great big cupboard for stowing all their uh, rods. And when they caught these fish and brought them ashore, after weighing on the key and having a few pictures taken, that was it. They had absolutely no commercial value back then. No, they used to put them on show, and when it went rotten, they put another one there. But they were just, you just dumped, and now they're worth a fortune. But I have tasted them, I didn't like taste, they're a bit stringy. I prefer shark to them. I've tasted shark, they're far tastier. So the only real value of the tunny fishery from your point of view was as a means of earning yourselves what was at the time a very good wage that wasn't dependent in the same way as commercial fishing is on getting a good result. Bookings presumably had to be honoured. Even if it was bad weather, they never got off for that. See, they still had to pay that money. It was guaranteed money, you know. Once, Mr Weatherly was a full week in Arbour. We never got out and uh, still got money. How many years did Mr Weatherly fish with you for? Oh, he used to come with my, grand, my granddad into, uh, before war. And after war, me, uh, he, he come with my dad because my granddad retired like. And when did he fish with you last? It'd be 30 years since he was here last. And he, he stayed at the Grand Hotel. His wife had died. It was going on. And uh, my mother went to see him. And it wasn't the Grand Hotel like it used to be. This is what my mother said. So she got him out and got him in a better hotel at South Cliff. And we all went to see him one night and had a meal with him. Yeah, and he went back home. Within a year he died of old age. So there must have been quite a strong bond between yourselves and Harry Weatherly, despite the obvious differences in wealth. Oh, I remember once, you know when our fleet was here, Scotch fleet, uh, lovely ships, 
we're in the harbour and we're all on deck talking and this Scotch ship brand new came in Nan McMurray they called her varnished he said would you like one like that Will to me dad like he said I can't afford one like that he says I'll buy you one. No, it's true. And I heard me dad say, no, you don't it, Mr. Weatherly. Anyway, I, afterwards I said to me, Dad, why didn't he, he was keen we wanted to buy you one like that. He said, if if he'd bought one for me, I'd have been beyond to it for the rest of my life. You know what I mean? That's, that's how they were. Yeah, we, we would have bought him one. Prior to all these big fish, including world records turning up off Scarborough, Nova Scotia off the east coast of Canada was the place to go looking for them, and no doubt a lot of people over there fishing for them would have been rich Americans. So when this lot kicked off in the North Sea, did he see a sudden influx of Americans coming over? Or was it pretty much something that only rich English people did? In the 20s and 30s, yes, but not in the 50s. See, I didn't start well in the 50s. Before the 50s, at school for pleasure, but there was no Americans then. I know there was in twenties and thirties, because I heard my dad say there were many used to come from all over. Yet despite all of this money slushing about, despite the fact that world records were being caught, and despite the fact that angling history was also being made, though people at the time would probably be unaware of that, other than a few old black and white photographs, plus one short piece of movie action I've seen on the internet, nobody it seems was bothered much about recording any of what was going on. No. I mean, some days when the water was really calm and so clear that you could see down a long way, 40 or 50 fish all over, all over the shore, you know. And if you'd had a good camera then, you could have, you could have took the pictures, you know. And no newsreel teams wanting to accompany you? Once I went board. Do you know when the last tunny was caught off Scarborough and who caught it? Well, as far as I know, my Uncle Tom caught the last fish in his boat, which was the record fish, at the end of the 50s. So looking back, what can you recall now about the numbers of fish being caught? For example, what would a typical catch for a trip be, and how many fish might you expect to see over a season? We used to average about um, two to three fish in two days. But we, we once caught four in two days. And did you have a blank? Uh, if it was bad weather, you, you, you come back and it was a blank. You know, but uh, n nearly every time you, you, you sight your fish and caught them. What sort of numbers then might you catch in a season? I would say we average two a day. Normally we need about six weeks tunny fishing. And they were, they were thrown away. They were thrown away. Nobody wanted them. And your grandfather, I believe, was given a special presentation on the catching of the hundredth fish. Yes, my granddad is on this photograph here with the fish, tunny fish alongside, tunny fish tail alongside of him, what was cured, and Mr. Weatherly, we used to take out, he presented him with that tail, because it was his hundredth fish he'd caught. Oh, my yeah. granddad in his, my granddad's boat. That was 1949. So when did things start to slip into decline, or was it more sudden than that? What do you think was the key factor behind it? End of fifties, there was none caught. What happened was the government banned banned drift netting for herrings. Well, it was so easy to find tunny fish because you went to the first drift netter who was catching herrings and you, you just said, have you seen any tunine fish? Uh, no, uh, but I get on the radio for you. Light flashing over there, they were there, you went over there. Well, when they banned all these ships from catching them, 
he went out and it was hard to find them. So I say, were there, were there herrings, odd herrings dropping out at net? It kept the tunny fish on the yeah. surface. So the tunny weren't themselves wiped out. You just lost the ability to find them when the herring boats stopped loose feeding them. Presumably then it was back to the commercial fishing. Yeah, there's still plenty of dogfish about in summertime. I used to land at Grimsby, it was a very good market. You couldn't sell them here, but you could, there's also a good market at Grimsby for dogfish. Because when they went to London they were, they were called rock salmon. I didn't like the taste of them. I've tried, I've tried them. They weren't very tasty to me. Were they spur dogs? Yes, they had two spikes on the back. They used to skin them, and then the majority went to London. And how were you catching them? Long lines. Did you ever pick up anything else of interest on the lines besides the spurs? Well, if, if, if the bait was fresh, uh, dogfish would eat anything. They would eat anything. But, uh, like skates and cod, they wouldn't tackle it because the bait was, it was salted and it had gone brown. And it's very rare you got a fresh fish with old bait. Yeah, you went with fresh bait, you, you used to get skate and odd cod, you know. And then you, you used to have to dump monks in the 50s because nobody wanted them. And now they're uh, top of the range, monkfish, used for scampi. Yeah, we've done tons of monkfish, you said, and it used to be any amount. We used to dump them because we couldn't sell them. Now there is fish coming. Yeah, there used to be any amount of skate, they've disappeared. And halibuts, you don't see halibut now. And turbots, there used to be plenty of turbots. We once caught 500 stone in two days. We used to work uh, any amount of long lines, 12 score rooks on one line. You had three men baiting aft all, all day when you, you, you were six-handed, six in the crew. But to find dogfish, it was so easy, you had a line with about 100 hooks on, you'd shoot that and uh, you used to leave it for 10 minutes, no more, no more. Because if they were there, they would be on hooks and they'd all and then you'd steam another half an hour, put another feeler in, with the products on, and uh, till you come at them, and then bang your lines in, you know. And within 24 hours you could be full up. Yeah, fishing was full in 24 hours. You'd be back in Grimsby landing. Yeah. We, uh, one particular time, tide suited, dogs at the bottom of River Umber, right at the bottom of River Umber, and we landed every morning that week and out again. So we landed every day and it was in front page, Evening News, Grimsby, record catch. I forget how many kit we landed, but all the total, total was £1,260, which was a lot of money then, 1951. Yeah, £1,260. And it suited all that week with tides. If we missed tide, we'd get penned in, you know, and then get penned out again, which you do used to do like. But the last day, they wouldn't let, they wouldn't let us in, tide was awkward, so we had to go into the basin, and we had to organise the wagon to come down, and we piled them all onto the wagon, and took them round to the fish market. 1964, I bought a ship, me and my brother bought a ship for trawling, and uh, we once got this... Uh, mining net 
and it was shaped like a torpedo. Anyway, when we hauled, all the net was torn, and this mine was hanging out the cut end. Well, we could have reached down and cut it adrift and let it go, but we didn't. We got a strap around it. We over to board and put it on the other side of the ship and lashed it up. Put a new net on and shot away again. Well, this area where we were working, there were seven more ships. And I knew one of the skippers, he was in the Navy, taming mines, working among mines. And I called him up and he said, he says, you want to get out of there? That mine has ten booby traps, the way I described it. So, uh, and one of, one of the booby traps was vibration. And another one was letting it go, pressure of water building up would have set it off. Anyway, cut a long story short, I got on radio to Leckenfield and I told them, they said, get off of Scarborough two mile, drop your anchor and get the hell out of it. Which we did do. A cobble come off and took us took us in. Next morning there was uh, this officer and uh, three ratings and we took them out in the small boat and I said, You won't be blowing your ship up, will you? He says, We might have to do if we can't get inside. Anyways, his brother was killed during the war, taming this mine. It's a German mine. And what killed him? He used to say, right, I'm doing so and so now. And he's putting his hand in a bit further. Each of his hand blew him up. Yeah. Anyway, they, they got the detonator out. And uh, they went out outside of Scarborough. And they could hear the bang for miles and miles. And they closed the marine drive, you know, and all they were two mile off. It was, uh, and if it'd been a, if it'd been a English man, we would have got a lot of money for damage what was done to net and that. But with it being German, we didn't get a penny. And uh, I must tell you this: a fortnight later, we got another mine in net, but it was a round one with spikes on, and you could see inside of it. So we weren't frightened of that. So. <coughs> We put that on deck, and I got on radio again. And when we came in, there was somebody there from Leckenfield, and uh, oh, you'll get some money for this. It's all right. It's not. They went went round it like, oh, it's, you're safe with this one, like you know. Anyway, we got about four hundred quid. Yeah, and uh, anyway, they said, oh, when are you going to see tomorrow? Dump it. So we had it lashed aft, you know. Anyway, next morning we came out to go to see. Mine had gone. But what was outside of us, he bloody pinched it. <laughs> when he came in at night time, he claimed he got 400 quid for it at all. So what sort of changes have you witnessed in the state of an all sea fishery between the mid-1950s and the time when you retired? Oh, stocks have went right down. 50s, 60s and 70s was the best. And after that, there, were, there wasn't the cod, there wasn't the fish like there was. Technologies killed it. Bigger ships and all the gadgets in wheelhouse, what you had, a fish hunt a chance. And then, uh, then they put limitations on us, government, so we all had to sell out, get rid of, because uh, we couldn't cope with the demands of what they were putting on us. This particular time, we were real restricted and we had a book, log book in the wheelhouse, and I said to the crew, look, we've 
we've only got six boxes we can catch, then we'll have to go in. So I said, we shoot away. We towed three and a half hours and hauled. Net was full of cod. Oh, what a sight. Net blew out the water, you know, with cod full of air. We landed early morning, thought I'd take the chance. And we got caught. The fine was, it went into thousands and thousands, I can't remember what the figure was now. Or, take the tie-up. Eight days, end of every month, for a year tie-up. So we took the tie-up. Well, it was one of the best years I had because we were in and out, in and out. Because we knew we were going to have eight days and, and, it, uh, and it was a lovely fine year that. No bad weather like, you, you know. And uh, we were landing, ice, oil, grub, out again, straight away. And one of the best years I've had. So we were punished, really. And eight days holiday every month. Eight days, yeah. And then he got, they put different penalties on you. And, oh, we just had to get out of it. Just had to get out of it now. There's only three trawlers left, or two trawlers left in Scarborough now, and Whitby's only four. There, there was a meeting, and the, the next year they, they won't be able to cope. They're, they're only allowed to work 90 days a year now, and they're knocking that down, so they'll, they'll be selling the ships if they can get rid of them. When I first came into sea angling, the Yorkshire coast was literally alive with cod. Then maybe ten years ago, the stocks began to nosedive. But over the last couple of years, there have been very clear signs of recovery. Because uh, uh, you, you, you're limited in what you can catch now. There's not the ships now. There's not the ships now. No, I mean, there used to be 30 trawlers out of here. Now there's only two. Uh, Grimsby. I mean, uh, Grimsby, uh, 50s, 60s, there was uh, 500 big trawlers. Went to Iceland and... All over, clear of the small ships. Then there's all, and all that's gone. I mean, Grimsby and all used to be booming. It's like ghost towns now. Grimsby is. Common sense, isn't it, really? But, you see, the thing is, you aren't allowed to catch this. You aren't allowed to But you catch another species, and it's dead. And you have to throw it away. Which is silly, really. Uh, this is what we all got out with. You just break your head. For miles around there's dead fish where you've dumped and it's it's small sized fish but you weren't allowed to catch that particular species. It was outbreaking to something really fish. Because uh, I mean it's all alive when you pull your net up. Uh, I would say I would say ninety uh, percent of it was dead. Only just died, you know what I mean? But it's fresh. So what was the herring fishery like back then in its heyday? And was it really the key ingredient, so far as anglers were concerned, in wanting to catch big tunny? Herrings then kept a lot of people on the East Coast employed. Plus, I suppose, indirectly, people like yourselves taking well-heeled anglers out too. There's lots of uh, Scotch lasses used to follow the fleet, get in the herring. Lodge on here, when Key Street was Key Street, loads, of, loads and loads of cottages, well, they knocked them all down. That's where they used to be put up, you know. And uh, the boyfriends would be on ships, you know. And they'd be all day gipping errands, and majority of errands they were all salted in barrels, and majority of errands were sent to Russia. Yeah, all gipped and salted. But There's plenty of old photographs in Scarborough with with them on pier, all gipping errands, all, all pier, right away around far pier, lighthouse pier, back at fish market, all over, all on seafront. Yeah.
So, contrary to what I thought, and much of what I'd read, though there was increasing commercial pressure on North Sea tuna population numbers, it wasn't direct over-exploitation that brought the fishing for them to an end. Rather, it seems it was the sudden inability to locate the fish in the absence of the herring boats hauling the nets. Indeed, there have been a number of occasional reported sightings, and even huge dead tuna washed up along Britain's North Sea coast in recent times, not to mention the very impressive but sadly short-lived resurgence of rod and line fishing from them off the west coast of Ireland, particularly by Donegal skipper Adrian Malloy, who took the Irish record up to a staggering £968 back in 2001. Unfortunately, over recent times, that run appears to have dried up to the point where no boats have caught one now for several years. In fact, on the very day that this interview was recorded in November 2010, the European Union activated a ban on the catching of bluefin tuna from the Mediterranean and the Eastern Atlantic. That said, you can't help but wonder how many of those Irish fish made it around the top of Scotland into the North Sea, as they used to do all those years ago. If ever there was a right time to go out there and take a look, it would have been between 2000 and 2005. But, as Bill Pashby has already pointed out, without the commercial scale chumming of the herring boats, just exactly where would you look? <laughs>